This is Chapter 32 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We feature a debut novel about a year in the life of a kindergarten class mom. Trust me, Washington politics has nothing on parental politics. And then biographer Stephen Gaines turns the tables and shares with us his poignant, heartbreaking, and laugh-out-loud memoir about coming out in 1960s Brooklyn. The social hierarchy of class parenting is laid bare with hysterical results in Lori Gelman's debut, Class Mom. She came into our studios on what happened to be the first day of school for a sit-down with our Marla Diamond. This is funny. It's written in a very funny way. And sometimes I think, you know, we take things a little too seriously. But tell us a a little bit about the book. Well, I mean, it's loosely based on the fact that I was a class mom for five soul-sucking years, and I wanted it to be sort of a, a, a take on on that job that sort of flips it around, because I'm kind of tired of the class mom always being like the the snippy one and the one that just judgmental, and I really don't think that she is. The class mom is the cool mom. She's the one that sort of sets the pace and does all the work, and, and nobody seems to appreciate her. So my um, my protagonist is Jen Dixon, and she's she did it once when she when her kids were young, and now she's had a late in life baby, and she's forty seven, and and her son is starting kindergarten, so she is now the class mom again, and this time she is taking no prisoners. And what she writes is completely unconventional and completely hysterical. Is this how autobiographical is this? Well, the the emails, mm-hmm. the first email is verbatim what I sent to my class. <laughs> and some of the other ones are actually, you know, with it, you know, you had to, I had to change it for uh, just to fit the book. But a lot of them are exactly what I wrote to even the, you know, the one that had to be sung to the tune of Santa Claus is coming to town. That one is is legitimate as well. I wrote that. <laughs> so she cr- she creates some enemies in the class or frenemies, you might call them. Right. And friends, too. I mean, I mean. When I went through it, um, you you just you could split the class with it. I mean, some people were like, "Oh my gosh, I've never read anything by a class mom. I, I look forward to your emails; they're so great." And then other people were just like, "She thinks she is special, doesn't she?" <laughs> so, because I see that you take bribes, you ask for <laughs> things uh, for the parent. You know the parent meeting uh, that are, are illegal in some parts, like the marijuana brownies. Oh yeah, uh, the, the special brownies. The wine, yeah. the, and, <laughs> the jello shots, and uh, you, you you put pressure on the parents to respond to you right away, <laughs> right, <laughs> with their times because you get rewarded for um, being the a first responder. So, so I mean, yeah, it it was all of that. It was all stuff that I did in my own class, but I didn't want to make it. Nothing that happens in the class happened to me. Like, I didn't have a crazy teacher, and I didn't, like, those are all made-up characters, and they have nothing to do with with, um, my school experience, but the emails and my um, determination to get everybody to just relax a little bit and take it less seriously um, is all in there. Yeah, the emails are snarky, they're funny, uh, they... Do offend? I, I suppose that they, you know, doing this for for every, you know, rec- recommending doing this to any class mom, you know, might be a little on the edge. But I think I might add some of the, your ideas in here this year as I become class mom for the fifth time. But um, I'm I'm curious to know why you 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 set the scene in Kansas City, Missouri. Why not New York City, where things are 
where you live mm-hmm. and where things are so much more political and cutthroat. Do you know that for a fact, though? I think it's political and cutthroat everywhere. I really believe that. I wanted to to put it someplace where everybody can relate to it. So Kansas City, Missouri is very close to the geographic center of the United States. And so I, I, I really wanted, it, it's an equal opportunity slap in the face. It really is. I mean, I've talked to parents from all over the country. And if I start the conversation with, have you ever been a class mom? To the one, it's like, ugh, yes. Everybody has a story about it. It doesn't mean that it's a completely horrible job and that it's all bad, but everybody has a story about something that they had to do or or some interaction they had with another parent or a teacher. I mean, everyone everyone has experienced it and gone down that road. So why not take it out of New York City, which I think has been overplayed anyway. Mm-hmm. I think there's been just too much about the Upper East Side moms and how I don't witchy they are. I don't know how much I can swear on this show, but <laughs> witchy with a B they are. And, and really, like I, that's the life I live, and I, I don't see that. I mean, when I read like Primates of Park Avenue, it just to me it's like too much over the top, and they don't they don't deserve it, and they don't need it. This book is really not over the top. Um, most of the things I, I could relate to. I know. Like, <laughs> seriously, I mean, there was a couple of things I, I think I went a little too far, but other than that, no, it's just stuff that everybody deals you with. You got the mom who has the allergic child that gets on you for every class party that you have, and. <laughs> The, the mom who brags that she's from Manhattan when she's really from New Jersey. and um, But it has an interesting ending, which we won't give away. I was quite shocked by that. Oh, you were? Oh, you, good. You, you took a twist a little bit there on, you know, there is a mystery to solve in this book. So right. it's not just letters to the class. There, there is a storyline and a mystery to solve. Do you know what's funny is this is my first book. So I... I started writing it just as letters to the class and a little bit of um, explanation in between. And it was one of my friends who read a couple of chapters and said, you know, something else has to happen here. Mm-hmm. Like she needs a goal. Other things need to happen. You need more subplots. And, and you know, you think, you think you know how to write a book, but you really don't until you start writing one. And then you're like, oh, you're right. I need this and I need that. Everything has to have closure. Everything has to sort of come together. And that was a bigger challenge than probably the biggest challenge in writing it. Yeah, I always wonder if uh, writers just write along and then have to tie up the ends at the end, or if you've already thought about the ending for some of these characters before you wrote them. The only thing I knew when I started was that I wanted it to start in September and end in June, which was a a school year. And beyond that, when I started writing stuff, I had no idea where it was going. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would do that again because you really, you twist in the wind for weeks at a time wondering what the heck you're going to do next. And sometimes it hits you and sometimes you just have to take everything back that you wrote because you have nowhere else to go with it. Right. So uh, you could give us an interesting perspective on a first-time writer of fiction. Uh, Many of us have a book in us, but we don't think about how to put it on paper or don't have the time to sit there and think it out. So do you think it's true that we all have a, a story in us? And how do you go about making that leap from what you were doing, you were a broadcaster for many years, to becoming an author? Well, I mean, I was a broadcaster for many years, then I became a mom. And that was my second act. So when I realized I wanted a third act and I wanted it to be, I wanted to write something, um, I think that what you have to do is you have to talk to other people because I don't think everybody knows what their story is. I really believe that. I think everybody has a story, but um, as Steve Hartman points out, 
on uh, 60 Minutes and, and the CBS Evening News, you know, sometimes it takes somebody else to pull that story out of you. And for me, I wanted to write a children's book so badly. And I wrote one and I got it rejected 37 times. Mm. It was brutal. And um, I was with my book agent and I was complaining that I couldn't believe it. This was such a great story, this great kid's book, and there's so much crap out there. And and then my phone buzzed and I was something about my class, my, my class mom duties. I was a class mom that year. And I started just riffing about this. Oh my God. And like, and like expletive, expletive, and these parents are driving nuts. And he was crying, laughing. And he said, that's your book. And I'm like, that's my book? Are you kidding me? And you know what? He was right. Uh-huh. I didn't see it. I would never have written this book. But he said, that's like, you should hear yourself talk about this. Right. So I, I think everybody can, can sit down an hour a day in front of a computer and just vomit out thoughts. I think that that is the way to start. You don't have to have an outline and a vision. Mm -hmm. You just have to start finding your voice. And the way I found my voice was being class mom and writing the emails, Mm -hmm. but also I blogged for a couple of years, which like nobody read, but it's okay Mm because I did it for myself. And and I sort of, I, I developed a writing style and a personality doing that. And you were disciplined enough to sit there and do this every day. You have to. Well, take time out of your busy day. Right. I didn't have a busy day. That's the point. My kids are off at school all day, and you know. But you do have to treat it like a job. Like you have to take at least I say two hours. But if you really are super busy, take an hour, sit down, and whether you write five words or five hundred, it doesn't matter. Just get get it out there. Whatever it is you're thinking of, whatever story you want to tell. Um, treat it like a job. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be there for this time to this time every day. Right. And get off the Wi-Fi. Do not get suckered into, you know, uh, looking at your email or anything else. Just mm-hmm. just stay away. Right. And you talk about uh, writing several drafts of the book and kind of cringing when people read it and then you'd have to do a rewrite. But I guess uh, something like this needs a lot of eyes before it actually goes to print. I think that really helps. First of all, you get your friends or people that you trust, really close friends or people who love to read will, you know, will give you some good feedback along the way. Ultimately, you have to, you know, give a package to somebody and the rewriting, the magic is in the rewriting. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's it's having somebody else's perspective. Like I handed this book in and it was a perfect circle of love. I thought this was like perfect. And I gave it to um, Macmillan, Henry Holt, and they said, we love it but you need to add one more plot line. And when you think about it, like this is a perfect circle and they want you to jam like a triangle into it. It's like, are you kidding me? That was the hardest thing I've ever done. But I think I did it well because people always ask me what the added on plot line was. What was it? You want me to tell you? Will it give away the ending the, the of the enti- book? The, no, the entire Such a Fox uh, ah! plot line was completely added in after the entire book had been so read. The- the main character, Jen Dixon, bumps into her old crush in high school. He right. happens to be a father in the class. And then they carry on this sort of texting affair. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's real. You know, it's real. And uh, did you have to do research? I mean, the only research you had, I had it all in your head. <laughs> it was all in my crazy, crazy head. Except, you know, the Internet is amazing because um, – I, I placed it in Kansas City, Missouri, which I've never been there. But you can Google anything, and you can Google the name of the person who owns the restaurant so that you can even add that in if you want, and what's on the menu, and where right. it is exactly, and what's it beside, in case, like, they have to go to the gas station after dinner. You mm-hmm. know where you're going. You know, you, it's it's an amazing thing. And um, I 
came to love Kansas City, Missouri, and I can't wait to go visit it because I think it's it sounds like such a cool town. Yeah. I'd like to go to this school where Jen Dixon is. <laughs> she's a real ball of fire. Yeah. Um, and I also, uh, reading the afterword in this, where you thank people, you thank uh, comedian Carolyn Ray, who is hysterical. Yes. She was one of your proofreaders? She was. She's a very good friend. Uh, she lives, you know, a block and a half away from me, and, and we exercise together. And she gave me, as I said, the best line in the book, what I think is the best line in the what book. What was it? Because you say, I'll leave it to you to figure that out. <laughs> there were so many laugh out loud lines and I'm like what is it oh my gosh it's um uh why oh why is it that the allergy mom is always herself a nut yeah (laughs) I thought that was a great line she put it in there that is so true so you say you get asked you've been on the uh the tour promoting the book and you get asked a lot about what advice would you give to a class mom but this book is not that it's a fiction about you know, a mom who just tries to shake it up a little bit. Right, exactly. And if if I was asked for advice, that is the advice I would give. Make it your own. Make it fun for yourself. Because if you're having fun with it, then everybody is. Don't just cut and paste the PTA, you know, grocery list email and, and then mm-hmm. just any questions at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Like, make it your own. And, and that's what that's what I did. That's what I do in the book. And, and I think that it, it makes it a better and more fun experience for everybody. Right. And uh, some may not know, but you are the wife of Michael Gelman, who I is am. longtime producer. Started with uh, Kathy Lee and, and Regis, Regis yeah. and now it's Kelly. And I always who say is he has the, <laughs> Ryan. Yeah, Ryan doesn't trip off your tongue yet. It'll, it'll happen because he's he's still new. Um, I always say my, to Michael that he has the worst resume in television because he's had one job one for thirty five years. Right, you know? right. But uh, he's funny. When they put him on camera, he's always like the comic foil. He's the straight man. So did you get anything from him or um, is it I, all you? It, it, this was all me. He's a funny guy. And, and a lot of people really don't know that because they think of him as the downtrodden poor Gelman gets, you know, beat up on. But he is a very, very sharp wit. Uh, I did not let him read the book until I was finished with it. And the biggest compliment I could have ever gotten was from him was um, he said, this is actually really funny. And that was when he said when he finished it, yeah. which was great. He loved it. Not too many pages, so you could read it over <laughs> two nights. I think I did. I always say it's the easiest book you'll ever read. So once you've read, like, the Pulitzer Prize nominees or the Booker Booker Prize, like, winners, then, you you know, you have a little break and you read Class Mom. Because we need these books, too. We do. Thanks so much for coming on Author Talks. And uh, it's Class Mom. It is on store shelves. You can buy it on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or you know, anywhere uh, that books are sold, and it's really a riot. So thank you so much, Lori, for coming on and, and talking with Thanks, us Thanks, Marla. I had fun. Thanks. Author Stephen Gaines has written biographies about the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and Calvin Klein, among others. But his latest subject is one he knows very well, himself. I spoke with him about his memoir, One of These Things First, which recounts his growing up as gay in Brooklyn in the 1960s and his failed suicide attempt at the age of 15. You focus on a very specific, very difficult time in your life in this memoir. Is it safe to say this is a period that most defined who you are now? Without any question. I mean, remember, I realized that I was gay when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and that was in the early 60s. And there was no, it gets better. There was no help. There was nobody to talk to. Uh, So 
what that does when you're a child and you don't know who to turn to is you build up a tremendous sense of no self-esteem, of self-hatred, of loss. Yeah, I felt that I was a freak in the world. And, you know, it takes the rest of your lifetime to repair those kind of feelings. And your approach in this book is actually very funny, but how long was it before you could relate your story in this way? 55 years. <laughs> Seriously, I, I tried to write this for many years, maybe going back 25 or 30 years, and it always sounded very kind of self-pitying and, and sad. And it's the last thing anybody wants to read now is another, you know, pity me memoir or book. And then I, I think in general I'm, I'm pretty funny and I have a good sense of humor. So I decided to write it that way as, as, a, as a funny book. Of course, there are moments when it's not funny at all. But um, the thing that everybody says about the book, most of all, is how hysterical it is. And I think some of the funniest moments come uh, when you're at the Payne Whitney Clinic. For people who don't know what that place is, can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. Well, when I uh, signed myself in, I went voluntarily, but basically, to Payne Whitney in 1962. I was only 15 years old. And um, it was the most exclusive psychiatric clinic in America. Marilyn Monroe had been there. A lot of very, very famous people. It was very expensive. There was no such thing as health insurance at the time. Or if there was health insurance, I, our family certainly didn't know about it. And they used to call it the Harvard of psychiatric clinics. And, and the reason why I went there, by the way, because, you know, when I was a little boy, like very many gay children do, I made a suicide attempt, and gay children are still doing that, but it was much more prevalent back in the 60s when there was nobody to turn to. And when I did that, they were going to put me into a state hospital. And if that had happened, if I had been put into Creedmoor, I wouldn't be here now talking on the telephone. Uh, but one night uh, before I was going into Creedmoor, I, I saw a news clip of Marilyn Monroe leaving Payne Whitney. And since I was a young gay boy, I thought, wow, Marilyn Monroe, I, I want to go where she went. <laughs> so I talked my grandfather into shelling out the money to pay for me in Payne Whitney, and I found myself in an incredible environment. It was like a wonderful old dowdy hotel with a lot of very successful rich people um, who kind of took me under their wing. And I had a great time. I wanted to stay longer. <laughs> and you struck up a great friendship with Richard Halliday. Tell us a little bit more about that. That was such an important thing. That was such a great stroke of luck. You know, Richard Halliday was a, a Broadway producer, um, and he had produced South Pacific, The Sound of Music, Peter Pan. Um, he was a great Broadway producer, and he was married to Mary Martin, who starred in all of those Broadway shows. And when I met him, I didn't know that he was a Broadway producer. I was helping him do a jigsaw puzzle. Um, he was uh, probably in his 50s at that time, um, a very elegant man, a very interesting man, and he told such great stories about the Broadway theater and actors and actresses. I was dazzled. And so I told him my stories about growing up above a Bronx girdle store in Brooklyn and the old Italian ladies and Irish ladies who came into the store, and he loved those stories. He had never heard those stories before. And he said that I was a good storyteller. And he was the first person who encouraged me to write it all down. And, and that encouragement really helped me choose a career as a writer. And one of the not-so-fun uh, experiences that you went through, you were put through conversion therapy, or what we now know as conversion therapy. 
And I would expect you to be bitter about that, but you really aren't. Well, first of all, it was definitely not called conversion therapy then. Um, because, uh, by the way, homosexuality was still, you know, the the thing that dared not, the, the word that dared not be spoken. I mean, people just didn't come out and say that they were homo. The word gay didn't exist. But I was so miserable. I was so unhappy with my fate. I saw no future for myself. And the doctor that was assigned to me at Payne Whitney, his name was Wayne Myers, the brilliant young psychoanalyst, and he felt bad for me. He saw that I had tried to kill myself. I didn't know where to go, who to speak to, what kind of life there would be. And he said to me, listen, do you want to be heterosexual? I can help you. And I said, oh, please, please. So it wasn't conversion therapy. He was going to cure me of a fate that I did not want to have. And so I spent 10 or 12 years in psychoanalysis with Wayne Myers trying to cure my homosexuality. But here's the thing. He didn't. I mean, maybe he made me feel bad about myself by convincing me I had an illness, but he also built me up. He gave me hope for the future. He taught me how to be a good person, how to have an organized life, how to make the old college try. And if it wasn't for Wayne Myers, I never really actually would have sat down and written a book. He made me believe whatever I wanted to do was possible. And although there were some destructive things in that 10 or 12 years in trying to become straight, for the most part, he he really helped helped my life, and I wasn't angry at him at all. You talk about um, some of the bad things, and you also in the book you touch briefly on your experiences with bullies, and that's something that really hasn't changed for kids who are either gay or perceived differently by their peers. Do you think it's tougher now because of the prevalence of social media? Well, I think that gives people an extra opportunity to bully, but I do also think that bullying has has finally been recognized as something that happens all the time to kids at school. And um, I, I think, so it, it might be more difficult because of social media, but I think that there's a great awareness of it. However, kids still tried to kill themselves because of bullying. The interesting thing about my bullying, I think, was that I was bullied by two adults. They owned the luncheonette on the corner of where I lived. There were two guys. They could see I was a little bit effeminate, and I was 11 or 12, and they started making jokes about me, and they were adults. Uh, It it, it stunned me. I admired those two guys that owned the candy store, the luncheonette. I didn't know any better. So it was really disheartening when they made fairy jokes. And by the way, you know, the word gay, as I said before, the word gay didn't exist. I was uh, ugly things. I was a homo and a faggot. And so I, it was very, very hard for me to be bullied. And, and, you know, my grandmother heard them bully me once, and she didn't say anything. She swore she'd never go back into the candy store. But, you know, that's the best they could, especially when you have a child who's being bullied about homosexuality. It's not something you really want to get into as an adult. And also very tough considering the traditional family that you were coming from. Yes, well, you know, I grew up above a bra and girdle store. And if there's anything that's going to make you gay, it's growing up <laughs> on top of a bra and girdle store. I've got to tell you something. I grew up behind a rack of dresses, basically. And I heard all the mysteries of female plumbing and all the strange <laughs> things that anybody could, that you don't want a child to hear. So, yes, the environment that I grew up in made it even more difficult, but, but very funny, too. 
And uh, one of those other places uh, of your childhood is the movie theater. Now, you in the book use movies a lot to relate your feelings, your experiences. Was that just the way or that was how you coped? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I wound up going to NYU film school. Um, here's what happened. Because I lived in a commercial district above my grandmother's store, Braun Girdle store, right on the corner, maybe only 300 feet from my front door, was this huge 1,500-seat movie theater, which was empty during the week. It was a big old barn of a movie theater. And I could go for free. My grandmother gave Hosier uh, stockings to the manager's wife. So he let me in for free. So I went to the movies the way other kids turn on TV. I went to movies every day. I saw some pictures two or three or four times. And movies really began to inform my life in a substantial way. And I'm sure that's why I eventually went to NYU Film School. So you mentioned it took 55 years to finally put this all down in writing. Why share it? Why share your story with the world now? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, I, I get... Since I've written a lot of biographies, I did The Beatles, The Beach Boys, Alice Cooper, I could Halston, Calvin Klein. I get phone calls now from a lot of people saying to me, um, I want to write a memoir. And I always say, well, why do you want to write a memoir? And they say, I want to be remembered. I want to tell my story. And I think that that's really a common thread in, in baby boomers especially. And now that there's self-publishing and there's the Internet, we can all tell our stories. And I think we all have a story to tell. I think what makes these stories important is not how strange your story is, but the commonality that we find in all of our lives and what we did to overcome it. Overcome it. And uh, so I thought it was important to get this story out there. And I'll tell you, of all the books I've written, all the huge bestsellers, this book is my favorite and the most important. I can imagine that it would be. It's, it's quite the story to tell and to read, too. I mean, You go through all the emotions reading it. And also when I was reading that part where you're 15 and you're calling the clinic and then you're calling your doctor saying, I'm not going, I had to think you had some chutzpah. Yes, I think, you know, that's a very important, they say, they say when you're writing screenplays that um, uh, character is action. In other words, uh, the, the, when the first time I take, really take action to take control of my life and to help save my own life was when I refused to go to Creedmoor or I refused to go to the, the mental hospital. I chose another hospital. And as you read the book, the more times that I make a decision about what I want and what I need is the more I'm able to help myself. Um, so I think that's a very important thing. I think character is action, and I'm, I'm glad I... I made those choices, even though it made a lot of people angry. (laughs) Well, Stephen, thank you for taking the time today to tell us your story. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Just a note, September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. If you're struggling, there is help. Call 800-273-TALK or text the word HELLO to 741-741. That's this week's podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And if you want to send us more than 140 characters, our email is books at WCBS880.com.